a diverse life and people living in many ways. A Diverse Life, the podcast that explores how people live, love, play and work in all their diversity. Hello and welcome to A Diverse Life, episode number 22. Um, before we do anything else, I just want to check in with Mick Slater and see how he's been doing on his 1,000 mile walk. So let's catch up with him. It's day 27 and I'm at the 27 mile marker today. So I've got another six miles to do, which will take it's a 20, 20 minute mile, take me a couple of hours. I've just entered into the city of Marseille in France, which... I've been in France now for three days. That was a real marker that progress is being made entering, entering through the French border. And it's bringing it home to me that I'm actually getting closer now. And as the walk's gone on, initially it was one day at a time. The only one thing I can think of is finishing the day. Mentally I wasn't in a position where I could think two, three days ahead. It was not, not happening. And I remember thinking back, once I got to the 15, 15 day mark, then it's a countdown. And then from the single digits, so nine days, eight days, I was getting all excited. But then, then it just, it just continues. And then now, I'm counting down quarter of a day at a time, 8.25 miles. That's where I'm at now. It's, it's got me to the, to the point of just breaking it down. So I've only got a target of eight miles to do. So now to finish today, I only have six mile. I'm in the last quarter of the day. And so I'm... I'm adding that I've got three full days and, and then uh, just, just a quarter. The reason I'm hesitating, I'm just making sure I don't get run over as I'm entering into the city part in, in Marseille. Being in the city and the, the busyness and the rush and the energy is just, it can, it can just disorientate you. Just like it did earlier when, when I was entering through, through a motorway tunnel and, and, and I came out and, and I just really didn't know where I was because the noise was that, it was echoing, it was, it was resonating. And then I came out the other side to, to uh, look in, it didn't look real, it was a viaduct. The, the sun was catching and, and the brickwork on it and I was mesmerized by that. And the view through the through the arches was just it was just incredible. It was just it was just like a picture. It didn't look real. So those are sort of moments that I've had so far, and and, I, and I've enjoyed the challenge of of the walk. So I'm looking forward now. I've got three three more full days to go. I, I'm I'm very confident. I'm tired. But, um, but I, I'm, and I'm learning to live the moment. That's very important to me, living the moment. So I've got some fantastic memories so far 
that I can that I can uh, take with me. So that's it really for the update at this point. So I'll I'll catch you soon. Great to hear from Mick. Uh, great to hear that he's surviving his walk. Um, he's doing a brilliant job for the charity mine. So I hope that um, you might feel like giving something to that campaign um you might notice a sort of drop in sound quality at the moment i'm sorry i'm not in the studio and i'm having to do this on my handheld recorder uh, uh looking sort of facing my sofa um and it's, it's not the best place to record but anyway hopefully you can hear me all right um so uh yeah this episode we're talking to saul hewish about uh conscientious objectors and um he's been doing a project in prison uh I'm not going to tell you anything more about it. Have a listen to this. So uh, that was a group of men singing in the prison. Uh, Saul went in with a musician and songwriter and they worked looking, exploring the history of conscientious objectors and they wrote songs um, which they put into a performance which was performed after a two-week residency at the prison. So um, it's a fascinating project and I won't say any more about it. I'll let Saul tell you all about it now. So it's called Ghost Songs of the Conscientious Objectors and it was the final piece in a trilogy of history prison history programs that we ran this year at HMP Stafford the genesis of the idea comes from a previous piece of work which I've talked to you before about which was about the, the, the history of prison food yeah. which we did with the histor- some historians from the University of Warwick and they've been involved in this set of three residencies as well and it grew out of that project the beginning of this year we did a dance piece which was about the history of hard labor in prison in the summer we did a piece which was a puppetry piece looking at the history of what were known as weak-minded prisoners but that we interpreted as possibly prisoners that might have been autistic or learning disabled yeah and then the final piece which we've just completed, was really looking at the role of conscientious objectors in World War One, but particularly those that ended up being sent to prison, okay. their experiences of prison, and the subsequent impact that their imprisonment had on prison reform. Okay, and so the and what what's the predominant art form that you were working with with the prisoners on this project on this project it was singing okay so i and my vision for this whether we actually achieved this or not was relatively simple in some ways because i i went well i want a choir of men and in my head i sort of immediately went to sort of a welsh male choir and then i had a vision of a of a chapel in the middle of nowhere in Wales with these men singing about conscientious objectors. So effectively what we created was a secular service. Okay. So it's 
has songs, one of which is is like a hymn. Uh, but the other songs in the show are very much rooted in styles which would have been popular at the time of World War One. So we had a folk song. Yeah. We had a music hall style song and we had a parlor ballad okay which was the kind of more of musical songs were very much the the realm of the working classes and then parlor ballads were a, a more middle class pursuit they were often extremely sentimental right. you know. So. And would they have been played by those middle class people at home on their own little piano? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's coming at the time that uh, upright pianos start to become more available. So it's part of how you entertain yourself, hence the parlour nature of it. Okay. And you invite your friends around. And you know, okay. you... so There's two questions coming to mind then about going into the prison. A, what... What were the men's feelings about this idea of conscientious objection? And then also, how did they feel about singing? Well, I'll deal with the, the, the latter question first. Because this was the last project we were doing, and we had generated quite a lot of interest in the prison from our previous project. So I was aware that I had men that were saying, yes, I've signed up, I really want to do this. So actually, because people have worked with you before, which is a case in prison, isn't it? Once you're in and people get to know you, they trust you, and you're you're going to get more people signing up for things. Absolutely, and the word the word spreads on the wing that you know these people are okay. Yeah. You know they they're going to do a good job. Now we did something in this project which I've never ever done before, which was that we began with a group of twelve men. And then I said that in the second week, I wanted to bring in some more men to to increase the size of the choir. So I, I put a notice out in the prison saying that really for the second week, we'd be interested in men who maybe had had experience of singing in choirs previously so that they didn't have to kind of learn quite as much. And so in the first week, we focused very much on the writing of songs so we wrote five songs and uh, for this project I worked in partnership with the Irene Taylor Trust Music in Prisons project which is run by Sarah Lee down in London and also we worked with a really brilliant uh, community music facilitator called Aidan Jolly and Aidan helped us in the first week considerably both in terms of teaching the group about the musical styles of the time but also in terms of helping us to craft songs which were based on the historical source document that Hilary Marland from Warwick University she brought along and also we were very fortunate to hook up with the records archive in Stafford and they had a huge collection of tribunal records from World War One, okay. which should have been destroyed in the early 1920s, but for whatever reason they weren't and they got sort of left in a box somewhere and then they were rediscovered. So um, the tell us a little bit about the tribunals and okay. what they were about. And yeah, so, so in terms of conscientious objection, prior to World War One. 
So the Britain was kind of quite unusual in Europe because it didn't have a conscripted army. So it was a volunteer army, effectively. And then the war begins, and initially at the beginning of World War One, there's a lot of people join up very, very quickly to go off and fight. And there was the... Um, Powell's brigades, so it made it pos they made it possible for you to go and fight with your literally with your brothers or with your friends from your town or village, which is where this Powell's brigade okay. comes from. I didn't from. know that, so it's a bringing together of people from a, a particular place but keeping them together, yeah. And it was part of the part of the mechanism by which they encouraged people to join up because they were sort of saying, Well, you know, you can go up and you can go with your friends and they can all go together. And it was really tragic. Yeah. There's a there's a really brilliant play, um, called The Accrington Pals, which yeah. is about the Pals Brigades from Accrington. Yeah. So, by the sort of midpoint of the war obviously what's happening now is not only have all the volunteers kind of volunteered but also they're now in a situation where quite a lot of the people that that said they wanted to go and fight weren't really in the greatest of of health necessarily so they weren't necessarily very fit and so they're now going well we need more people to to fight and so they introduce the Military Service Act in 1916 and effectively overnight every male in the country between the ages of 18 and 41 is now deemed to be a member of the British Army. Right. They knew that this was controversial and so they had written into it that there was a conscience clause so that you could appeal your conscription on the basis of, of, and there were different reasons that you could appeal, but one of them was on the basis of conscience as a result of um, particular religious beliefs or moral beliefs, and that included political beliefs. Yeah. Now, you're telling me this earlier, and I was yeah. surprised by the number of people. So what was the number of people that so the, 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 the there are different estimates, but a kind of fairly reliable number is that there were 16,000 conscientious objectors now in the great scheme of things that's not a huge i mean there were six million uh, men went and fought in world mm. war and so it was a huge number but when but, you consider that the pals project the fact that actually you to do that you've got to make a big stand it was a huge stand and yeah. it and it was a very uh i think traumatic time for people obviously because mm. they were in in the the great war mm. And many, many people had died. And so you could... There were 16,000 conscientious objectors overall. And of those, 6,000 went at some point or other to prison. Right. So you would have a tribunal... So you would appeal your conscription and that would go to a tribunal. And at the tribunal, you'll make your case. These were... Um, locally organised tribunals. There was very little training, and essentially your your future was being judged by the local clerk from the, the the mayor's office, or it could be a local solicitor. You know, so so often uh, your objection would be refused. A person of standing in the community, so presumably there 
they're going to be influenced by they're their not, beliefs, their, absolutely. Their, their standpoint on the war. And also, yeah. you've got to figure that, that most people were for joining the war and yeah. being part of the war effort. Mm. It was the thing to fight for your country. Mm. You know, Lord Kitchener had put his big call out mm. and people were very wedded to that. Yeah. So... If your tribunal failed, then you could go to an appeal. So you would start locally, then you could go to a regional appeal, and then you would go to a national appeal. The national tribunals were the final the final call, in a sense. And then there were a number of options that, that could come. So you could get absolute exemption, but very few were actually given that. I think it was about 400 in the end were given absolute exemption. You could be exempted from... Um, fighting duties so you could be put into what was there was a non-combatant corps and so that would be you were part of the army but you wouldn't have to engage in battle yeah. but you would be doing things that were part of the for the war effort or out fight you know but you weren't so you might you have been fighting. stretcher bearing yeah, or you yeah. might have been cooking or whatever it is then there were other options there was um, there was something which was the friends ambulance organization which was organized by the quakers so they ran an ambulance service if you refused all of those then effectively you were sent to prison okay so let's go to prison then so you've gone into prison you've taken in these ideas you've taken in um musically skilled individuals to, to come in and work with them so what 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 were the guys getting out of that? So obviously they're learning singing, but what's the, in terms of thinking about conscientious objectors, thinking about all the information that you're sharing with them and writing these songs, what was the learning do you think that they were taking? Well, I think for some of them, initially, because we did have a couple of veterans in the group, so there were quite, there, you know, there were discussions about, you know, well, these guys were objecting when, you know, there were many other people who were going up and fighting and they didn't necessarily want to fight, but they did it. Okay, so that's a, so that's surprising because someone in prison, you would probably think, yeah, anybody, you know, what, why would I want to do something the government want me to do? You know, maybe being a bit anti-establishment, but that's not the case. No, no, and I think they were quite... I sort of expected them to be more of like, yeah, you know, they're conscientious objectors, you know, they did the right thing. Mm. But actually, within the group, there was a, there was not a big split. I mean, we didn't have, like, big arguments about it, but there was definitely a sense from some of them that actually, well, if it had been them, they'd have gone and fought. They wouldn't have kind of made a whole big song and dance about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they... And that's generally in, I guess, also... The nature of the men at Stafford, there's a much broader demographic range and there's a, not a lot of older prisoners in, in Stafford. Yeah. So uh, it it was kind of... They were really engaged and I think part of the reason they got really engaged in it was because we had these records from Stafford. So they were real... We were dealing with real people's yeah. lives and we had a bit of a discussion about the ethics of that and how much do we identify and in the end the decision was made that we should identify because we wanted to celebrate the stand that that these individuals took at a time when you know you would re you were really fighting against the tide of of the general public opinion yeah. there was another thing with this wasn't there and so to going on the journey of it which you were saying and i don't know if you knew this beforehand but you discovered or you may have discovered through it that the 
conscientious objectors had a influence on the prison system. So was that something that you knew before? Or well, no, I did know that before because it's something that that we learnt when we did the prison food history of prison food project okay. was that some of the memoir material we had were uh, there was particularly as a, a piece of work called English Prisons Today, which was written by two men, Fenner Brockway and Stephen Hobhouse. And they had been conscientious objectors during World War One, and they wrote this book in the sort of early 1920s, and it was very much based on their kind of experiences of being in prison and talking to lots of prisoners. And it's I've never seen the whole. It's like a huge 700-page tome. So I was aware that they did have an influence in relation to arguing for better food in prison and recognition because a lot of conscientious objectors were vegetarian. Right. What I'd not appreciated, though, was just how potentially influential their, um, I guess, their protests within prison actually turned out to be. And I, that, I was made more aware of that because of a, an article um, which I think was by a guy, Victor Bailey, and... He's a historian, and he, actually what he's doing is that in his article he's arguing about some other historians and their interpretation of the, the kind of history of, of uh, prison. And he spent a lot of time talking about um, conscientious objectors and the fact that they very much, as indeed subsequently paramilitary prisoners you know they saw themselves i guess as political prisoners rather than as criminals mm -hmm. and so they were shocked by the conditions and in fact uh 18 so of those conscientious objectors 18 was were either at the time or subsequently became mps okay. so they were really able to take that experience of imprisonment into uh, legislation effectively mm -hmm. and so there is an argument that says that the conscientious objectors in prison alongside um, a, a sort of growth in humanitarian constructs and ideas and thinking about how do we organize ourselves as organize ourselves as human beings and how do we deal with people that break the law that, that those have come together and then subsequently influenced a lot of the changes that occurred probably between the sort of 1930s and the 1950s. So definitely influenced people like Alexander Patterson, who was the prison commissioner who introduced open prisons as a, as a concept and an idea, and who also was really articulate in arguing that prison and imprisonment is the punishment that you shouldn't go to prison for then further punishment Excellent. so the okay. restriction of your liberty is the punishment so um coming we need to find an ending of this now but the, that the the guys you worked with discovered that information along the way and how did so where did that leave them i guess towards the end of this as well as the singing where did the where did that sense of what the conscientious objectors might have done for them well 
what it did for them and i i think that i'm i was very pleased i gave my best ever pre-show pep talk to the to the men just as we were about to be in the show which i would genuinely believe which is the story that you're about to tell in this show would not be possible without the men that you're talking about mm. and so the fact that they were able to tell their story through song and through spoken word you know that arguably might not be possible if 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 those men had not taken a stand in prison and said no actually we want the right to be able to stand up for um, what we believe in and that actually the conditions of prisons are really appalling and you know if you don't allow people to talk to each other people will go insane yeah so i think it was a very powerful thing and i know that the men were very had that spirit within them when they performed it definitely so big thank you to Saul um, and Ride Out for sharing that with us I hope you found it interesting um, I hope you liked it if you do like it then please click the like button if you want to hear more from us click the subscribe button and then you'll be updated with all of our podcasts as they come online um, and uh, and uh, yeah if you want to get in touch we are a diverse life podcast at gmail.com or at a diverse life pod on Twitter thanks very much for listening Goodbye. A Diverse Life was brought to you by Richard Shakespeare and your host, Ian Pringle. It's a diverse life and people living in Maine.